Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Sammy Coyejo. Sammy is an assistant professor at the Department of Computer Science in the University of Illinois, just a couple of hours away from where we are here in St. Louis. Sammy, welcome to the Twilmo AI podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It is great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about your research. Uh, let's start up as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's start up by having you share a bit about, you know, how you came to work in ML and AI. Sure. So, uh, a reasonable place to start would be. Uh, Brown grad school, where I was interested in working on physical air communication systems. Um, as time went on, I got more and more interested in intelligence built into those systems. Uh, and I started working in an area known as cognitive radios. Over time, I spent more and more time thinking about the intelligence piece and maybe less on the communications piece. And eventually I uh, started working on machine learning as my main area of research. So by the time I finished my PhD, I switched advisors and worked in a different area. And uh, specifically I was looking at probabilistic models, Bayesian inference and related topics. My thesis focused on what is known as constrained or regularized Bayesian inference. It's a style of probabilistic inference where you add part of your prior structure is built into the inference algorithm and not just as uh, part of the sort of prior specification. So it's, so it's an interesting thread. Uh, from there, closely to my PhD, I started to work with uh, cognitive neuroscientists. And so I got interested in cognitive neuroscience and I ended up spending a couple of years uh, at Stanford building uh, machine learning methods and machine learning models for uh, cognitive science applications, neuroimaging applications and and related ideas. Um, About four years ago, I started here at Illinois. And I think of my research broadly as uh, adaptive and robust machine learning. Uh, my research is quite broad, so I work in a bunch of different areas. I still work in uh, cognitive uh, neuroscience and neuroimaging a bit and building machine learning tools for those uh, applications. Um, but in addition, in my core machine learning work, I think about scalable machine learning, fault tolerance in machine learning, um, and in a variety of topics related to how to construct machine learning systems uh, that make good uh, predictions for uh, various kinds of evaluation metrics and how that uh, interacts with human decision making. So um, sort of a a variety of research threads, but uh, hopefully coming together in a coherent set of ideas. Nice. Now I'm so kind of intrigued by this idea of a cognitive radio. How far did you get into that that topic? Is that an actual thing? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, It's an actual thing. Um, I haven't followed the development over the past few years, but it came about at some point where essentially ran out of spectrum uh, in the U.S. and in many developed countries. Um, And so in order to get more bandwidth, uh, there was the idea to make use of spectrum that ends up being sort of dead spots. Mm -hmm. So in various cities, different channels, say, broadcast on 
uh, certain radio frequencies, but leave some others. And so uh, one way to construct a radio that works in these systems is to actually sort of hop between different frequencies by detecting when a frequency is in use and when it's not in use and sort of hop in between and sort of communicate for a short time. And this way you can make better use of the spectrum and uh, actually make use of spectrum that otherwise would you, know, you could not use for any other purpose. So it's an interesting idea. Um, I believe that there are systems built out. I don't know the extent to which there are popular implementations of, of these things because again, I haven't followed uh, this idea. But but it was it was in response to I think a quite difficult problem in the communication space of running out of you know, wireless spectrum. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting, interesting. So you mentioned a couple of key areas in your research. One focused on uh, metrics and metric elicitation. The other focused on re- robust distributed learning. Yeah, let's start with the the first of those. When you're thinking about metric elicitation, you know, tell us a little bit more about the problem that you are trying to solve there. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. So it's a bit of a history, so it's probably worth uh, taking us half a step back and giving you some context. Sure thing. So the way I like to think about the problem is roughly when you build a machine learning system and you're interested in using the machine learning system for decision-making, many real-world decision-making tasks are actually quite complex, and they involve trade-offs between different factors. And the issue is that many of our default machine learning metrics don't account for these trade-offs in decision-making. And so um, at some point around, it's now been a few years, but I think around 2014 or so, um, I got interested uh, with, uh, at the time, my postdoc advisor, Pradeep Ravikumar, um, in thinking about how to construct machine learning models that could optimize complex metrics. So think of, in fact, there there are lots of great sort of common examples. So in information retrieval, popularly people use what is known as the F measure. Uh, So this is some ratio of precision and recall. It's sort of commonly used for prediction in these settings because it's thought to be a good measure of performance. But up until some of our early work, uh, there wasn't a good understanding of how one built a machine learning system that was specifically good at optimizing F measure. So before that, you know, you'd build your system to be good at optimizing accuracy, which again we're fairly good at doing, or maybe some weighted accuracy. Uh, but there wasn't a good sense of what to do if I change the measure into something uh, more complex like F measure. So we started this series of papers over a few years where we got better and better understanding how to construct good learning models for, again, what we call complex metrics, what are sometimes called non-decomposable metrics. And they're called non-decomposable metrics because I can't write down the metric as an average. And once you break this averaging uh, possibility, lots of standard tools that we like to use, like, say, gradient descent in a sort of straightforward way, Um, or tools that uh, we like to use in terms of analysis start to break down. And so it becomes somewhat of a more challenging problem to solve. And so, like I said, we had uh, a series of papers where we tried to understand these metrics a lot more and come up with good methods for optimizing them. And I'd give these talks and, you know, really excited about 
early work on this showing, hey, you know, give me your really complex evaluation measure. Um, I can tell you how to optimize it. And I should say that we had a characterization that was quite general. And so it was sort of, it could adapt to different notions of what good measures are. How complex are you able to get? You know, often when I think about, you know, metrics and the way you're describing them, you've got your metrics that the the data scientist or machine learning engineer is trying to build a system to. And then maybe there are metrics that, you know, aren't the one they're using to train their mm-hmm. models, but they're still kind of in their checking. domain, like your, your F score, you know, yes. but then on the other end of the spectrum, there are the actual metrics that business people care about, which yes. don't look like either of those yes. or often don't look like either of those. This, you this know, does your research get to that other end of the spectrum? Uh, yes and no. So I can give you some sense of, of the scope of where we can uh, say some useful things. Okay. So the first few papers, I should I should take a step back and mention that for classification problems, the primary statistic that one uses to measure whether uh, you have a good model or not is something related to what is known as the confusion matrix. Mm-hmm. So the confusion matrix is essentially measuring for every kind of prediction and for every ground truth label, how often in a setting with a certain label do you make a certain prediction? So I look at uh, the average times I say predict one when the ground truth is one, and this gives me some number, uh, which is the confusion matrix for one, one. Or I can do this for one, two. How often do I predict two when the ground truth is one? Or how often do I predict three when the ground truth is one? And all combinations of this for, say, a multi-class classification problem. So with K classes, I end up with a K-squared confusion matrix for every pair of uh, ground truth and prediction. So initially we worked on linear combinations of the entries of the confusion matrix. So you could imagine, for instance, that uh, predicting three when the ground truth is one is more expensive than predicting two when the ground truth is one. And uh, ideally you want to predict one when the ground truth is one. We're kind of familiar with this kind of scenario when we, you know, in its simplest form, like yes. false positive and false negatives exactly. so and some applications. Case, exactly those, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I uh, went to the more general multi-class case, but I think the binary case is enough for illustrative purposes. So in the binary case, it's true positives, true negatives, false positives, false po- uh, false negatives. Thanks for uh, pushing me in that direction. So, so initially we worked through, say, linear uh, weighted combinations of this. Mm-hmm. Eventually we got to ratios of linear things. Uh, which matches, uh, uh, captures things like F measure. So you can write metrics like that as ratios of linear things. Uh, now we're at the point where we can pretty much do sort of any function of the confusion matrix, and we can come up with what is known as a consistent estimator. So some estimator that we know will have good large sample properties. Um, so some learning uh, algorithm where I can come up with a learner or a optimization process that I know will have good behavior in terms of optimizing for some arbitrary function of confusion matrix. So how far does this go to real-world metrics? Uh, we think it goes reasonably far, but it, it's clearly once you get to real-world settings, many of the things you care about don't always are not always captured by the confusion matrix and or cannot be reduced in that sort of simple way. Um, though many are. So many things are just weighted forms of some weight attached to different kinds of mistakes. So as long as you're sort of roughly in a setting where the thing you care about is statistics of mistakes and weighting on, on those, uh, or even sort of arbitrary functions of those, they're pretty good algorithms now that, uh, based on work that I and others have worked on uh, to, build, to build good uh, 
algorithms for optimizing these. So like I said, or, or as I was going to say, uh, I would give these talks being excited by this line of algorithms and saying, hey, we can do you know any metric you like. Uh, and you get the feedback. Well, now you've made it clear that there are lots of different ways to measure what performance is. Well, which of these should I use? So it's quite unclear. Now, once it's clear that there are many ways of measuring uh, performance, it becomes trickier to think of or, or to pick which one is best suited to a certain setting. And so the idea of metrical station, uh, which is where we ended up with, uh, is uh, trying to turn the problem on its head and trying to ask, can I elicit good metrics by interaction with experts or with users or with panels of experts? So are there strategies I can come up with that can interact with an expert to, to figure out uh, what measure is closest is a close approximation to how they're uh, determining trade-offs or value of different kinds of predictions. And so the idea is that we can do if we can do this well, then uh, you can optimize for that metric. And more importantly, this metric is transportable. So I could change the class of models I'm optimizing. I could change the data distribution. Um, I could change the setting in some ways. Um, but as long as it's capturing the expert trade-offs, then this is a good way of measuring good performance. Um, and so this is something that I can use as I change the settings. So the example I like to give is a sim the simplest example, I think, that maybe illustrates the idea of elicitation is in a healthcare setting where, uh, say, a doctor would try, was interested in constructing an automated health decision-making system. Um, and so the doctor is an expert. They have some notion of how expensive, say, for a certain set of measurements, how expensive it is to, say, misdiagnose. So miss a diagnosis uh, when there's actually sort of some disease there or overdiagnose somehow. So like predict that, or say that someone has some disorder when uh, they actually don't. And so... This the actual trade-off depend on say the cost of treatment and maybe sort of potential side effects and sort of all these other considerations. Um, but and if you think about this as a decision-making problem, you can imagine that you could sort of compress everything down to there's some cost to making a prediction in one direction, and some other cost making a prediction in the other end. Um, often going from this intuition idea to a concrete trade-off function is hard. If it was easy, then one could sort of then construct models to directly try to optimize the doctor's trade-off function. But it's hard to do in real settings. Mm -hmm. And so what the idea of metric elicitation is, is to come up with a strategy to interact with, say, the doctor as an expert. Um, and based on this interaction, actually pinpoint the right trade-offs that should correspond with their preferences. And then you can optimize those preferences directly And if you're constructing sort of downstream uh, models. Um, other examples, we have considered, say, things like ranking models. We haven't worked on this. We don't have results for this yet, but in the pipeline are things like, say, ranking models. If you're building recommender system, you might imagine that your users have different preferences in the order in which, in which they want to see things. So you could imagine then constructing a listation procedure that uh, did a series of, say, A-B tests with your users and tried to pinpoint for the user population what the best approximation to the best sort of uh, ranking cost function should be for their setting. 
Is the process always akin to A-B testing? Um, you mentioned that in the scenario of users. Yeah. Does the same thing apply to doctors? You know, what do you prefer, choice A, choice B? So there are many ways you could imagine developing a problem like this. Mm-hmm. We chose to go with the pairwise preference approach. The motivation after talking to experts in the area was that uh, with pairwise preferences, it's sort of much more likely that we can get uh, users to easily give us uh, answers to the comparisons than if we tried other ways of, of interacting with with um, experts or with users. So somehow pairwise preferences are easier uh, for experts, say, to give uh to give feedback on than other kinds of ways of, of querying. Okay. Um, so uh, I should mention this is work led by uh, my student, uh, Garush Hirindiani, um here at Illinois and in collaboration with uh, colleagues, uh, Ruta Mehta and sort of other folks at Illinois. So um, this is work that, again, a few years, been at least the elicitation piece has been a couple of years uh, old. And again, it's trying to answer this question of, what metric should I optimize in order to get my machine learning system to do sort of the thing in the real world that I want it to do? Mm-hmm. So again, so the you, thing in the real world is rarely optimized accuracy. It's typically something much more subtle, something much more complex. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to get initial answers for sort of reasonable algorithms for trying to answer this question. Um, I also should mention, so the pain point in trying to construct this elicitation procedures is how many queries are you going to ask the expert? Because right. um, in principle, in theory, if you had had infinite sort of queries, you could elicit anything. But Yeah, so the idea is in as few queries as possible, exactly. get to formulation of yes. the, your metric um, that is as accurate as possible or matches yes. as closely to what the expert would... Do you define it as kind of produces a classifier that most closely matches what the expert would predict? Like, how do you tie it back into the metric of the classifier? I think you're talking about evaluation, which yeah. is tricky in this in these problems, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, but the the target, the conceptual target, is to like get the best approximation to the trade off function mm-hmm. that the expert is using. The practical evaluation is if I sort of change the classification uh, setting or change the distribution in some way, I should be able to get the same sort of outcomes as ideal outcomes from the model as what the expert would pick as ideal outcomes from the model. So it should it should replicate the expert's uh, predictions. But again, this idea of transportability, so it should be able to do this in a variety of settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I should mention it's quite close. Metricalization is not that far from ideas like inverse reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. So again, there's a whole literature, primarily in the reinforcement learning world, where there's a lot of focus on learning good reward functions, and sometimes by learning this reward, good reward functions by interaction with humans. Um, in some sense, we're solving a easier version of the problem than what the RL folks are trying to solve. Uh, we take advantage, though, of a lot of additional structure that comes from uh, the classification version of the problem, which is mostly what we're focused on so far. So we can uh, get sort of much stronger results, much better algorithms than often what could get in the sort of much more general reinforcement learning setting because you don't have to think about sequentiality of sort of in the same way that an RL um, setting would have to reason about. Uh, one issue also I should mention is 
And inverse reinforcement learning in particular does not always uh, focus on actually getting the reward function right. So to your point earlier, often the focus is on replicating behavior, not necessarily getting the reward function right. So in this, say, driving setting, I want to be able to drive the same way that the human drove, um, uh, where the human is the expert. So get me the reward function that does this the best in this setting. Not necessarily uh, in this in these settings. Sometimes there is not a focus on say what happens if I change the environment a little bit, and so now uh, the reward function um, has sort of so tuned to the original setting that it doesn't work as well in the new setting. So so one difference is that we're very focused on again this idea of transportability. So we're uh, the focus is to le- on learning or eliciting metrics such that they are agnostic to things like data distribution and the specific learner that you're using and sort of other kinds of uh, important, but um, uh, things that want to abstract away because we want it to have these uh, trade-off functions that you can then apply in sort of general settings. So uh, learning a simple setting potentially apply in a more complex setting is, is maybe one one way to think about it. And so how do you get to that level of generalizability? Is it in the, you know, your selection of data that you're training on, or does it have to do with the questions or sequence of questions that you're asking, the pairs that you present, or they're like, you know, black art techniques like dropout or <laughs> no, you know, I, things I like that? that... <laughs> no, it's actually, in fact, for the binary classification setting, with uh, linear trade-offs in the confusion matrix, it essentially boils down to a very simple binary search. So actually in many settings, it, it boils down to almost trivial sort of textbook algorithms. And all the work is in characterizing sort of how does one define the feasible metric space and how does one reason about how to search efficiently in this space. And so often once you do that, work, uh, the final step of the algorithm to elicit in many settings is actually much more straightforward than, than you might imagine. So so the thing that enables transportability um, is uh, so far we've mostly focused on settings where uh, the metric of interest is some function of the confusion matrix elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's interesting to note is that sort of trade-offs in uh, confusion matrix elements don't depend on sort of how good you are in classifying. They just trade offs between different kinds of errors. So those kinds of functions are agnostic, really, to sort of if you if you're able to estimate them well enough, they're agnostic to things like data distribution, function class, things like that. So, uh, so for instance, specifically again in the doctor example, if you're interested in the cost of misdiagnosis versus sort of overdiagnosis, so missing versus not missing a diagnosis. And just, you can think about this as a binary classification problem, but just weights between false positives and false negatives. Um, the what matters is getting those weights right, and the actual value of the false positive and false negative uh, doesn't matter as much. So you could have a learner that's much better at getting low false positive, false negatives. Another learned is much worse at getting low false, low false positive, false negatives. So this, this differences would be say differences in the, in using a linear model versus say maybe using a deep learning model in these two settings. So they would have different confusion matrix trade-offs. Um, but as long as you get the trade-offs right, the actual values are not that important. So again, we've, we've focused mostly on settings where that property is mostly true 
in classification, this is most often the case if you're focusing on functions of the confusion matrix. So it, it comes up sort of naturally based on the problem definition that we're interested in. And are there any uh, properties that arise that relate the, you know, for example, the number of pairs that you have to present to the dimensionality of your confusion matrix or something yes. like that? Absolutely. Yeah, so it roughly grows about linearly with the size of the confusion matrix. So okay. to get uh, roughly the uh, sort of conceptual theoretical claim is to get a certain error accuracy, the number of queries that you need scales roughly linearly with the sort of size of the confusion matrix. Mm -hmm. At least for, I should say that this is true for linear and ratio of linear things. Uh, if you're doing more complicated function classes, other terms start to show up. So for linear things, it mostly scales linearly with the size of the confusion matrix, mm -hmm. uh, which is, again, sort of number of classes squared. For ratio, you sort of have an extra factor of two there, but again, order-wise, it's mostly linear. Uh, if you go to, say, polynomial functions or something more complicated, then it, it scales um, roughly that earlier sort of says confusion matrix plus or times some term that depends on the order of the polynomial. So roughly that order. Um, so you pay some cost for more and more complex um, types of score functions. Um, there's some other discussion, which we've been trying to reason through about how, how complex does your sort of score function space need to be to capture human preferences appropriately? I think that's mm -hmm. an important question that we haven't answered. And, and I think uh, maybe not that many folks in the field have maybe thought about uh, very carefully. Um, in fact, we've been working a bit on actually reducing the complexity from even linear because some of the, say, psychology literature suggests that we mostly focus on sort of a few features as opposed to, say, arbitrary trade-offs between things. And so potentially the, the space of metrics is even lower dimensional than, uh, say, linear in some large confusion matrix space. Um, again, there's some interplay between uh, human-computer interactions, sort of psychology, a bit of algorithms, a bit of uh, machine learning. Um, so it's an interesting set of problems and an interesting space for us to work in because it's sort of quite unique within machine learning to have all these uh, problems come together. But we think it's an important set of problems because it, it, we think it addresses uh, core problems, particularly in practice, when folks are trying to design systems and they have uh, either a specific rough notion of what good systems should look like, but accuracy is not cutting it, um, or they're interested in some downstream measure that might involve, say, interaction with users. And again, potentially accuracy isn't getting them the results that they want. Uh, one area that we started to look at that is quite exciting as an application area, again, it's early days, but uh, I thought I should mention this, is thinking about elicitation in the fairness space. So in machine learning fairness, it's, it's very clear that different measures of fairness end up with different notions of trade-offs between uh, how you treat different, say, subgroups. I'm thinking primarily about, say, uh, statistical or group fairness in this case, but uh, similar ideas hold for other notions of fairness as well. Um, and so one could imagine, and uh, Sarah's sort of first steps on this, and there are also a couple of papers on this idea of uh, coming up with 
uh, elicitation procedures uh, that can build context-specific notions of what uh, metrics or what statistics you should be trying to normalize across groups um, in order to achieve a fairness goal in a certain setting. So that's an application area where uh, thinking very carefully about exactly what you're measuring um, is interesting and and potentially uh, quite important to get the results that one would want. Mm-hmm. I think it's still not absolutely clear to me in either the medical or the fairness scenario mm-hmm. what these pairs concretely look like. Yeah. Like, are they, you know, in the case of, I, I'm even ha- having trouble, like, formulating the question concretely yeah. in the medical case. Like, sure. But I can imagine that there's like a degenerate case where you're like asking the physician, would you rather spend, you know, like you're taking pokes at the, at the, you know, the function, like, would you rather do this a thousand times or this one time or something like that? But I'm, I'm getting a sense that that's not exactly it. You can show that if your metric is a function of certain quantities, then the only things that matter are differences in those quantities. So in terms of pairwise comparisons for the confusion matrix setting, uh, you might imagine comparing confusion matrices, which is not something that's easy to do, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the work is uh, coming up with ways to translate those comparisons into comparisons that, uh, say, a medical expert could do. So the variety of techniques that we've started to, to work with to try to solve this last mile task. Um, so you can imagine, for instance, showing where two different classifiers that have different confusion matrices as sort of their outputs, where they differ in terms of their predictions, or a variety of ways of working on sort of interpreting trained models. So once you have a way to... uh, So we have good ways, by the way, of translating confusion matrices back to classifiers. Um, This ties very closely to earlier work I mentioned on optimizing arbitrary metrics. So we have very good understanding now of sort of how confusion matrices relate to models. So we can sort of go back and forth very easily. Um, So once you have this, then you can convert uh, comparisons of confusion matrices, which is what matters in terms of the trade-off, into comparisons of models. So sort of model that achieves confusion A versus model that achieves confusion B. And what the expert needs to be able to do is tell us their preference between uh, model A versus model B, some sequence of times. And we choose the sequence of comparisons in such a way that after uh, sort of after a few queries, we can pinpoint uh, the trade-offs that best capture um, how they're weighing different kinds of errors in the confusion matrix, for instance. So is, is this model comparison formulation a way of looking at this or is is kind of fundamental to what you've described around metric elicitation always based on this model comparison? The way that we have built up the approach, the fundamental piece is, to summarize, is roughly being able to compare confusion matrices, which will boil down to mm-hmm. comparing models. Um, to take a step back, though, again, it's sort of whatever you're using as the sort of the parameters of your uh, cost function, so the quantities in your cost function, um, only differences in those quantities will show up as differences in the measure. So for instance, if in addition to confusion matrix entities, you really care about smoothness of the function, 
that becomes a third thing that you add, sort of a new parameter in uh, the set of things that you would be comparing. And so you'd get, say, two classifiers that differed in confusion matrix, uh, confusion matrices that they achieved and also maybe had different smoothness. Um, and you would then tell sort of, you'd be, you would be asked to give a preference between the two. So it's comparing, the fundamental thing is being able to compare whatever quantities determine the metric. So however you define a metric, whatever quantities determine the metric, you need some procedure that allows the expert to compare those two things. Uh, in the classification space, which is a space that we've studied by far the most, the natural entities are confusion matrices. And so you need a way to compare confusion matrices, which we do by sort of converting back to models. I should say we have started a new line of work thinking about how to maybe do this, how to select samples intelligently. So you can imagine instead of comparing models using, say, where the predictions differ the most, you could imagine uh, the algorithm also selects a specific sample and says, if you pick this model, make this kind of prediction. If you pick this other model, make this other kind of prediction. And using that as a way to get feedback. It's still early days on that line. So I, I, it's hard to say sort of very clearly what is doable and what works well. Um, right now, I'd say the work that is most mature is focusing on comparing confusion matrices, translating this into comparing models. Um, and then using that as a way to pinpoint preferences for the expert decision maker. And then we we're going to talk about a totally different yes. area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of your research. A bit of extra time on this. But so another line of work, uh, <laughs> which, so, uh, which we've been making, I think, quite interesting progress on is a question of robust distributed learning. Uh-huh. Um, so this is work uh, led by my student Song Xie and a collaborator here at Illinois, uh, Andy Gupta, who is a professor in the system side um, at Illinois. So the the setup is that uh, we're interested. I'm laughing because it's sort of like you said, how different it is. But so the setup of the problem is that for various reasons, particularly sort of scalability and privacy, there's a lot more interest in training machine learning models in a distributed way. So uh, scalability is being able to use sort of lots of machines at the same time and potentially just getting more throughput running through much more data per second. Um, so you can imagine this in data centers where sort of each machine has some amount of computing power the idea is if I run lots of these machines at the same time on a stack of data, I can, and I do things appropriately, I can, I can sort of train my model much faster. You could also imagine, in fact, one of the, I think, interesting use cases of this is in uh, sometimes called sort of Internet of Things or edge uh, networks where, say, you're interested in training machine learning models uh, partially on your edge device. So a good example is something like a cell phone. Um, you want to do some of the processing on your cell phone. And the idea is that if I do this appropriately, I can avoid sharing data 
directly with the centralized server so I don't have to transfer data. Uh, this might win in terms of communication. And if I do some extra work, I might also get a win in terms of privacy. So I, I can actually protect the user's data from uh, sort of easy snooping, uh, but still get the benefits of training a big machine learning model across lots of devices. So that's the sort of the general setup of, again, distributed machine learning in general. Mm -hmm. So one a unique problem that shows up in distributed machine learning is that um, once you distribute your machine learning process, you've made the system much more vulnerable to failures of various kinds and potentially to explicit adversarial attacks. So failures, if you have 10 computers, so any one of them could potentially fail at some point. Uh, you could have communication issues. Um, so just, you know, some network thing fails and in between in within a optimization loop or between a training loop. And so because of that, uh, if your modeling and your optimization process is not robust, you could imagine uh, potentially breaking the whole training process. Um, the worst case version of this, and this comes from the systems literature, is known as uh, Byzantine attacks. This is the idea that you want to protect your overall system against the worst case setting where an attacker takes over some subset of machines uh, and does whatever they want in those subset of machines. So they could, for instance, try to poison data on those machines or try to send wrong information back to the rest of the system um, or whatever else. And in Byzantine machine learning or uh, Byzantine robustness, the focus is on typically the idea is the attacker is doing this as a way to break the system. So if they can send the right wrong information, if you like, uh, they can get the model to converge to whatever they like and sort of get arbitrarily bad uh, behavior in your system. Mm -hmm. And so what you what we're interested in are strategies, one for just better distributed machine learning, as nominally as, as our initial target, and just coming up with better optimization strategies, both for standard distributed learning and also this idea of uh, what is generally called federated machine learning. This idea of, again, training machine learning systems in a distributed way without sharing, uh, say, gradients or, or sort of uh, sharing information at every setting. You said without sharing gradients or... The idea in uh, federated uh, machine learning, very close to what is uh, sometimes called local SGD, is that each device runs several steps of gradient descent on their local data. And instead of sharing gradients at every step, as you would do in a standard distributed setting, uh, they would share model parameters after a certain amount of training on the device. So again, if you do this plus a few extra steps, you can get privacy, you can get much lower communication overhead. Um, if you allow for machines to come in and out, then you get something close to say what the Google system, a uh, federated learning system does where they can train say next word prediction models on your cell phone without actually sort of transporting your text data all the way to Google servers. So you can get uh, privacy, you can get some robustness, but you can still get sort of reasonable performance, hopefully close to what you would get if all the data was in the same place. There are a variety of strategies, but the rough idea is, is again, targeting this distributed optimization in a way that hopefully replicates something close to centralized optimization. Um, most of our work has focused on the setting where there is a server somewhere 
And the optimization or the learning setup is that the workers communicate with the server every few uh, every few rounds. So either again using gradients or using models if it's either federated or standard distributed settings. Um, and so there's a simple strategy actually that uh, was quite popular when people started getting interested in robustness in uh, distributed learning systems. Um, so the idea was, well, mostly federated averaging, which is the standard method for uh, sort of federated machine learning, or even standard distributed learning, uh, most of the methods work by averaging the gradients at the centralized server. So the workers do whatever they do for a few steps, one or k steps. They send some information back to the server, the server averages it, and that becomes the information that gets sent across. And so the idea initially was, well, we know how to do robust grade, uh, robust averaging. So if, if the potential failure point is this average of lots of different sort of model parameters across devices, and there's the potential for some of these uh, model parameters to be incorrect or explicit attacks, um, then we could do robust averaging. And if you do robust averaging, um, then you avoid the possibility that one of these devices can lead your model in sort of the wrong direction. So that oversteps, you know, have this, what is again known as Byzantine behavior. So get you to arbitrarily have uh, a bad estimate or a bad model parameter by sort of optimization failure. So a lot of the early work in this area focused on uh, trying to come up with or use robust ways of computing averages. Um, so they replaced, say, the mean with the median, which is known to be robust to sort of lots of outliers. Um, and other more sophisticated schemes, so there's a trimmed mean approach where you throw away the sort of largest and smallest elements in your average. It's a few other more sophisticated. This crump, which is quite popular uh, as a way to do this sort of uh, robust averaging. Um, what we showed uh, last year is an interesting behavior, which I think was not obvious uh, when we were, I think folks would first think about this problem. So it turns out that um, you can construct a sequence of uh, sort of bad model updates such that the mean remains close, but the model parameter diverges over optimization steps. And the issue is that um, sort of the mean being close is not the same as sort of the optimization direction, for lack of a better term, going in the right direction. So I'll try to explain this in the sort of standard distributed learning case. I think this is where it's, it's maybe clearest to see. So in the standard distributed learning case, all the workers compute gradients on their local data. They send the gradients to the centralized server. Centralized server computes the average of the gradients and sends this back out to the workers. And this average of the gradients is what is used for sort of the next step of, of gradient descent. So... Again, the original papers tried to just compute this average gradient in a robust way to avoid failures. So again, if some steps of the workers were sending wrong information, as long as you use the robust average, the mean would be close to the sort of original mean, even if there were a few failures. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that if I'm running gradient descent, I construct gradient updates such that the means are close. But the direction of descent is actually, if you like, even opposite from the direction that it should be going. 
So I can get the model to do really anything I want while keeping the means close at every step. Is the idea that you're accumulating small distances in the same, in a deliberate direction over time, and thus you're throwing your mean off, or is it more nuanced than that? It's close. It boils down to the difference between sort of distance and angle. Mm-hmm. So uh, what really matters for good gradient descent self-optimization is to be going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So the way you construct the attack is you keep the distance close, but you get the direction to just be a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And you do this and accumulate this sort of little bit off direction over steps. And so, you can again, you can get the model to do really whatever you want in this distributed setting. So this paper, um, I believe it's in UAI last year where we show this. Yes, UAI 2019 called Fall of Empires, Breaking Byzantine Tolerant SGD by Inner Product Manipulation, where we essentially break all of the existing methods for um, trying to do robust distributed learning by computing robust averaging. Does the paper demonstrate that in a scenario that is real world-ish to some degree that the attacker has enough information to actually execute the attack? That's a great question. So the setup in a lot of security work and very definitely in the Byzantine world is that you try to protect against the worst case with the hope that if you get the worst case, then you're sort of, you get easier cases for free, including, for instance, benign cases. So things just fail and turn off. So uh, the focus intentionally is not on what is easily replicable in real world settings. It's on if the attacker had full knowledge of everything and could do whatever they want, what Mm -hmm. could they do? Mm -hmm. Um, And can I come up with a procedure that's robust to the thing that they could do? And it is that if you're robust in a setting, then you get easier settings for free. And it's typically the way a lot of security folks I think about sort of security design is, can I be secure against worst case behavior? Um, You could argue, I think, reasonably that sometimes it's a bit of overkill. Um, But again, the idea is that if you get this, you get easier cases for free. Um, And luckily in machine learning, uh, in distributed machine learning, there's lots of interesting things we can say. Um, And actually, importantly, you don't lose that much in terms of sort of overall training performance. So we have both theory and uh, lots of experiments showing that if you do reasonable things, um, you still get reasonable training performance, not that far from what you'd get in standard settings. Um, In fact, I'd say more specifically, if there are no failures, you get something very close to training in a standard way. If there are failures, you can show that many of the failures would break the standard training system. Uh, You can still train and get good results, though you converge slower than if you were in a sort of completely benign setting with no failures. So you pay some cost, uh, but you pay a cost that sort of allows you to actually get results compared to settings where, again, if there was an attack, you would just be completely vulnerable. And so what's the nature of the approach? So one of the approaches that we found very effective is uh, a bit of a twist on the problem, but um, I like it because I, I, I think it's I think it's clever. So the idea is to use a validation set. So um, what we do is we actually we assume that the centralized server has access to an additional data set that's separate from the data sets trained on that the workers are training on. And so what we do is in every step. You use your centralized data set to check 
whether um, the gradients that you're getting are helping you optimize better or not. So are they pushing the model in a direction that's sort of minimizing validation error, essentially? So it feels like cheating, but maybe I can argue <laughs> that it's not. It's several ways. So um, one, so you're, you're paying some costs. You're doing a, a bit of extra work on the centralized server. So before the centralized server, all it had to do was compute an average or maybe a sort of smart average. Now the centralized server is doing this extra work of checking whether you're um, making some progress or not based on the gradient that you got. Uh, we can show that you can do a sort of highly stochastic check. So uh, in particular, you can construct a checking procedure that roughly boils down to taking one sample and checking whether this one sample slightly improves and, and loss. Um, and if that happens, that's good enough to be able to check uh, whether things are making progress. And this is good enough to give you the protection that you need. So somehow, uh, the, the claim is that in terms of computational cost, the, over, the overhead you're going to pay is low. Um, in practice, the win is quite large. So this kind of approach is robust to some of the attacks I talked about, where none of the robust averaging methods are. So all the robust averaging methods are susceptible to... Again, getting the distance right, so making the distance close, but getting the angle completely wrong, so going in the wrong direction. Whereas this method that checks whether you're actually making progress uh, stochastically, so again, just using a few samples, can do this very efficiently uh, and is able to give you protection against the sort of kind of worst case attack. So uh, this is a paper we presented at ICML uh, last year. Uh, which we call Xeno Robust Synchronous uh, SGD with an arbitrary number of Byzantine workers. Um, another nice property of the method is that previous work gave you protection to up to half of the machines potentially being corrupted. Um, in this setup, you can show that uh, we have corruption uh, protections for a much, much higher uh potential fraction of corrupted workers. So really, uh, you need roughly maybe one good worker in your system to actually make progress. Again, of course, if there's only one good worker, you, you pay some costs, so everything will be slower. Um, but um, another nice thing is if there's corruption, but it's low magnitude, you can actually be okay. So you can actually use corrupted gradients to still make progress. Uh, again, as long as... Um, you can imagine an incorrect gradient being computed that's sort of a little bit off from the true gradient, but not completely off. Um, sort of benign failure setting. Uh, we can still make progress using that, where sometimes the standard method can can have trouble with it. So, so again, this line of work I think is is quite exciting because it's sort of coming up with good ways for training large scale distributed systems uh, with robustness built in. Along the lines of kind of the assuming the worst case security scenario, is there, are you or anyone else working on some kind of model where the workers and the centralized server kind of are in cahoots to determine if either of them is is corrupted? Because the, the centralized yeah. server is kind yeah. of the weak point in your previous yes. example. I think that's a very important point. So this is assuming sort of a centralized server that can be trusted, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is a bit of work in not fully trusting the centralized server. I've, mm -hmm. I'm familiar that I have to look up to get the exact references on papers that where there's sort of two layers of checks uh, mm -hmm. or checks in both directions. Um, I think that that 
entire direction is, is extremely interesting. Um, so there's a bit of work I'm thinking about that. Though, again, it's a bit sort of somewhat early days yeah. um, in, in that line of research. Okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, we've been thinking about this, like I said, for standard distributed learning settings where you're pushing gradients around. We're thinking about this for federated learning settings where you're pushing model parameters around. Combining this with just trying to scale up uh, distributed learning to be faster, doing adaptive uh, learning rates and sort of other methods to get distributed learning to converge faster. So again, this whole echo system of uh, scaling up distributed learning and combining this with robustness because of uh, special failure modes that show up when you uh, train distributed learning systems. Very interesting stuff. Um, starting to think about how we're going to combine all this into a single title for a podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, usually I'll, just I'll sticking leave the hard and work, and hard work for you to do. <laughs> I also have to do it when I when I write up documents for <laughs> summarizing <Yes>. my research. <laughs> um, and and I didn't get to talk about any of my uh, sort of cognitive neuroimaging work, so if I made your job a little bit easier, okay, then it could have been. Um, yeah, so some of the threads, um, I, I mean, of course, clearly the sort of basic tools mm -hmm. um, go back and forth. I should say, and I don't think I emphasize this enough, uh, I've been really lucky to have excellent colleagues and truly amazing students to work with here. And, and a lot of the sort of great ideas come from enthusiasm from the students. So, I mean, sometimes I say that my job is to just get out of their way and sort of get them to do great things. So yeah. uh, sometimes that leads to a bit of uh, sort of breath in, in ideas. Things that are somewhat constant, there's some, I think the core mathematical tools are you know, roughly, there's some new things that come on, but a lot of the basics um, are shared. I think there's some nice crosstalk between, for instance, I didn't mention this, but because we're thinking about robustness now as in general, we've been thinking about robustness in other settings. So in the standard learning settings, we're thinking about robustness in loss functions, robustness in elicitation. Um, so there's, again, some crosstalk between ideas that comes from this. Uh, and the other way we're thinking about distributed learning when you have, again, complex settings, complex losses, interacting complex prediction problems. So how does one change the distributed learning problem to account for the complex setting? Um, so I, I think there is some crosstalk that comes uh, between both of these and again, shared tools. But uh, I think it's fair to say that they're quite distributed, no pun intended. Well, Sammy, thanks so much for taking some time to walk us through what you're up to. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for time. And uh, was, I was I'm glad to have some time to yeah, you know, finally chat with you. I think we tried to set this up for some time. So yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we have absolutely. had a chance to go through this. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Same. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.